Welcome back to Lubing with Lubich, another part fantastic yeah. <laughs> uh, part two of our special on Lubing with our friends. Um, this is just a, it's a, a good way to come around. I, uh, you know, uh, after last week, you know, the, the offhand joke, I think, is a, a good transition to actually talking about Lubich this week, which we've avoided somehow 100 episodes <laughs> or so in. Uh, we'll get into him a, a little bit later, though, with uh, our, our dedication to uh, his his famous touch and such. Yeah, uh, Lubing with Lubich, the podcast famously where um, we do with podcasts what Nazis did in Poland. So. <laughs> it's, it is a very... I need to workshop uh, that. <laughs> It's been a very Nazi-heavy couple of episodes lately. Uh, yeah, you just vowed last week not to bring one. <laughs> and it, I didn't realize it was a one-week gap because uh, I've just started on my Lubitsch journey. So uh, for me, you know, to be or not to be, I'm like, oh, a Shakespeare adaptation. Great. No. <laughs> yeah, that was when you messaged me like partway through filming, you're like, how did you sneak another Nazi film into this year? And I'm like, how did you not know that that's what this is? It's like His most famous work. I, I seem to have avoided all the context. Um, you know, I, I can see why, like, if you go on IMDb, like the advertising for the film, obviously, like in, in 1942, they couldn't go full out like this is a film about Nazis and stuff. So like the poster is like super generic and boring and just kind of uh trades on the, the celebrity of carol lombard and jack benny but of course yeah so so it is th that is pretty hysterical that you had no idea that that's what it was about well <laughs> so of course once there. i got into it there there are some iconic things that you see represented all over the place that we'll get into um yeah uh speaking of fascists and not fascists <laughs> um God. there's been a large proportion of twitter that's gone nuts over the snyder cut in both directions i believe um every time he talks there seems to be a fallout now um he put out a statement that i guess like the wording is a little bit trumpian um he talks about you know how it's all just fake um well he calls the people who are denying him fakers for one which is trumpian obviously and then talks about destroying them and talks about wins for toxic fandom like these are all of course like uh like blurbs and like catchphrases for like the alt right but um in some way the only things that i think snyder's fan base have done um productively uh they raised money for suicide awareness and they got a movie made that is a batman movie so um i i don't see the fascism i don't see the obvious uh threat to society and uh, I mean, he had a he had a good idea. He just presented it poorly. I don't think that's fascist. Well, um, as the foremost Nazi expert on this podcast now, <laughs> uh, I'll I'll go ahead and weigh in by saying, you know, Hitler did some good things for Germany yeah. as well. Uh, and you know, nobody, at least, you know, at first, you know, it didn't seem like it was going to be that bad. <laughs> Pretty soon here, you're going to see DC advertised concentration camps popping up all across the country. You know, instead of Auschwitz, we'll have your Arkham asylums and such. <laughs> In a few weeks, the Snyder Cut will come out, and I'll be like, that fuck fascist <laughs> the yeah the snyder cut will be uh snyder's triumph of the will um i think the funniest thing he said at the end of it was that um what do you say they probably achieved more than any other fan base and done more good than any other group <laughs> I, I don't know if the snyder fan base has done more than any other group that, in the world there's probably other groups that have done more productive well, things so. also that sounds like very very trumpian in and of itself yeah. as well so this I is get the it. best administration you know we're the, the highest economy you know you know done the most since lincoln 
<laughs> oh, it was very Trumpian in language, but I think he's just badly expressing a pretty good idea that uh, just let people like their their dumb superhero things. It's probably going to be fine. It's not, ba it's not badly serious. expressing, you know, what they what they mean. That's that's also a, a pro Trumpian <laughs> argument. Yeah, you're um, not you're not looking at the results he's getting here. You're just harping on him for being rude on Twitter. <laughs> God, liberals need to move on. <laughs> it's just important for us to realize how it trivializes the uh, things that we actually like when we bring them into a context of things that are ending lives and devastating the world i mean this is a batman movie it, it's not going to be the end of times um he won't be able to make another one after this i mean they say he's done it's it's fine it's it's probably for the best that uh he's done just yeah in in general with this like you know i think uh, i mean obviously i think everyone knows here that we me and you think that uh the blockbuster cinema needs to move on from the superheroes and kind of change course here. It's kind of run, run out of ideas. And Snyder, especially, he ran out of ideas like five movies ago. In some ways, I was grateful for the like stoppage of 2020 to be like, let's take a step back and not release one for eight months. That was kind of nice. No, it was, um, it was superb. Like the the you know putting the 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 pause on Marvel stuff, especially like right after Endgame came. That was the perfect way to step out and just be like, all right, now we're we're done with these movies. We can yeah. move on. Uh, I know you've got like TV series and stuff going, but I don't care. Like, you know, this whole time on this podcast, we probably could have been talking about WandaVision since that's a big <laughs> thing on Twitter right now. But uh, I don't care. I, I don't care uh, whatsoever about what's going on with it and how it affects the MCU. I'm entirely oblivious. And you know what? It's it's divine. I think we would have used to have done that. Like when we were starting the show, that would have been something we would have been like, oh, uh, that's on Twitter. We should get to that. Um, yeah. Now I think we, we've been doing this long enough. We're at like 106. Uh, we don't need to cover every Marvel or any Marvel show. Um, nah, we'll be I'm fine. like, hey, hey, Calvin, check out this Lubage guy. He's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, no more Lubin with... Um, I, have to, I have to bleep that god damn it yeah. <laughs> the, the film that shall not be named <laughs> I just make these edits harder on myself every time I bring up <laughs> I wonder if anyone actually knows what it is they must by now or at least probably not because we bleep it <laughs> they probably have no well, at uh, least context. in this context and <laughs> like the episodes where we actually talk about the, the film it, it probably makes sense but yeah but here we're just not going to give any clues. Um, go listen to all 105 episodes before this one for uh, <laughs> further context on. It's like a it's like a scavenger hunt to figure out this film that we won't, we don't want to talk about. <laughs> right. <laughs> go back and look at all the episodes. There's a couple of clues sprinkled in. We we've hidden them in in Morse code messages throughout. <laughs> I took a show don't tell very literally by just said we don't tell we don't tell anything. <laughs> I mean, we are showing. It's just we don't have the medium to show it. Like, I literally have posters of the film all behind me here right. that yeah. that nobody can kind of get right now. You made a little, um, little Nazi. Uh, uh, don't 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 worry be. about uh, that. That's a <laughs> okay. Uh, it's it's a project for uh, uh, school. I was worried because it keeps building up every week. It's becoming a shrine. No. I, I appreciate you bringing this stuff because it, it'll always be timely, obviously. Sure. Well, well uh, I, I am sad to disappoint you this week, at least in my uh, documentary discourse. Oh, it's that, not related? Uh, no, I've, I decided that uh, the, the Lubitsch film was enough Nazism for, for one week, and I need to take a uh, break. So uh, I've moved on to a different obsession. Um, 
Uh, I'm going to take the moment here on the podcast to announce that uh, I've converted to uh, Satanism. I'm a Satanist Oof. now. Yeah, uh, after watching uh, the the 2019 documentary uh, "Hail Satan." Oh, you did? Yes, okay. yes, I did. I, I watched it. It was something I'd been interested in when it first came out because I saw it playing at the theater here that I, that I always go to. And I'm like, oh, this seems interesting. And then I just didn't go see it. And then uh, <laughs> I, I, think I, I think I was like sitting in High Life, and suddenly that trailer came out. I'm like, this looks fascinating. I have a yeah. review up for that. I think. Uh, yeah, it was it was a really interesting trailer. I remember that kind of caught my attention. And you know, uh, the the documentary itself was also I thought really really good and uh one of the things you point out in one of your reviews is that it's very funny it's it's it got is. a great sense of humor like the the satanic temple itself uh i think so that's I get... what's mostly understood is that these people are having a laugh i mean they, they think this is very funny right but it's also not like a joke to them either no. is the thing it's a very like serious thing and um so so essentially for those listening who don't know and who think that uh, I'm currently, you know, uh, practicing blood rituals in my backyard. Uh, well, you but... went from Nazis to <laughs> Satanism. This occult <laughs> stuff is really getting to your head. <laughs> I feel like I'm on a righteous path right now. I've yes. got, you know, I've, I've keyed in on something that was buried inside <laughs> myself. But anyway, the, the Satanic Temple is, is an organization, a religious organization, in fact, that... Uh, is less about the kind of, you know, voodoo-y kind of like dark, you know, black magic rituals that we kind of associate with it and more about activism and, you know, uh, political awareness and most importantly, trying to drive a wedge between um, the uh, religion, uh, the practice of religion and, you know, government that uh, is one of the tenets of our, you know, society that uh, is not very well practiced at this time or has ever been really. Uh, and so they, they use that, they use those laws and rules to work around and expose the hypocrisy of our systems um, while also practicing just like good community and, you know, uh, you know, volunteering and such within this and, and generally working to make the world a better place. Yeah, um, I think there's, you look at the beginnings of like the satanic books and like I read that as a teenager, of course it appeals to you. It's like, do what's pleasurable to you, like enjoy the enjoy the sense of the flesh. And uh, since then it's become a lot more activism. And um, I think uh, trolling major religions is a, yeah. is a huge component, which uh, makes it a lot of fun and kind of important. It's, yeah, it was really great. I think that what the documentary did is that it gave a kind of, you know humane side to it that you don't get because part of the reason you know and they expose you know they showcase it in the documentary really well that they go with this you know satanic symbolism and these kind of very harsh you know blasphemous uh, imagery that's associated with it is particularly like specifically to inspire that kind of aggressive you know like reflection on things and what does this mean and to to irritate and expose <laughs> that aspect it's not unintentional but you know it's also very different and removed from the kind of like satanic panic aspects of the the 80s that were kind of you know uh, induced into the culture which they also go over in the documentary as an important historical part of the growth of satanism as a practice and uh how even then it was showing kind of the roots of this you know uh rebelling against the system and reflection of you know personal identity and you know satisfaction with one's decisions in in, in life for themselves so long as they are you know in in the aims of goodness you know 
yeah. for an individual like there you know the whole thing especially uh, as far as how it reflects the progressive movements of today as well is it is a lot more about you know not imposing these you know orthodox kind of laws and ideas particularly like they, they have a lot of activism against you know uh you know abortion laws and such which is a huge topic uh nowadays which is you know again largely informed by you know, religious, you know, ruling over our laws, which really has no place in, you know, in our system. I always had like a, a core belief that like a denial of everything should outweigh a belief in just anything. Um, it's so flimsy if you just believe in, in like a whole picture of religion and, and take all of it for all it's worth. But uh, like when I started getting into recovery, they're like, uh, okay, Calvin, you can choose any God you want. Um, you just... You just choose one and it'll be perfectly fine. You can do a doorknob. I'm like, I'm doing Satan. They're like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh yeah, and that's the great thing about it is that it's just this very reactionary thing, and it's and it's flipping that tactic on a lot of things. I like how, uh, you know, when I was talking with my fiance about it, she said one of the things that you know is always very like frustrating, aggravating about these kind of you know uh, opponents, you know, who who to abortion and such, and you know, women's rights and all that is that they'll often like use the imagery of like you know aborted fetuses and whatnot to yeah. like scare and horrify people, and the the use of satanic images and the uh, you know the religious icons of a Baphomet or whatever are that exact tactic just flipped on them, and it's, that's all it takes to like make these you know zealots wig out. You know, it's just like all you have to say is like. <laughs> Look at this Satan guy that uh, I mean, buddies with, and they and they just like fucking lose their minds. I mean, yeah, like flipping that Baphomet in the way that they've always flipped their own religious. Um, you look at like all the art from Catholicism and how dark and uh, fucking scary it is. I mean, like a religious art has always been used to intimidate and terrify. So uh, to have their worst fear incarnated into your own sculptures is really fantastic for getting reactions. Yeah, and, and what it does as well, as they kind of point out in the documentary, which I appreciated, is that, you know, they specifically chose this because it's a symbol with which they can use and rally around, you know, like, like you know, people ask them, well, why don't you just be an atheist? It's because, well, yeah. being an atheist is lame, <laughs> and yeah, that's as good a reason as any, you know, like the, the satanic temple isn't like a very literal religion in the idea that they have, like, it's an not actual that organized, god. Right. Yeah, well, well, it's not like religious in that sense and that they have these you know uh ideas about an afterlife or a you know divinity or anything like that like the idea of satan is a you know uh, is a symbol that doesn't like exist in a literal form as a an aspect of rebellion and personal you know liberty and such uh and and that's what you know what's really eye-opening about it again when you look past the surface of all the kind of blasphemous imagery and see what they are doing in terms of their actual actions you know uh as opposed to you know what's on the surface it's very like the opposite of you know the the christian systems we see today and then this, this is not like a condemnation of christianity as a religion religion but more so as a symbol and then or not, not symbol but a, a practice uh on a systematic level yeah like they, they do a good job of pointing out the hypocrisy of it and how like the Catholic church, you know, has this history of covering up the abuses of, you know, young boys and whatnot, and just kind of move, you know, their priests around and such and how grotesque and, you know, entirely, um, you know, inverse that is to what they preach. And, and in fact, what they accuse people like the Satanists of doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I believe in it with equal weight in the way that I believe in God, not as a real thing, just as spiritual guidance of, uh, 
political principle that I, I follow what uh, makes sense. I, mm-hmm. I think what's so important about this is it's why Satan question mark, right? Like it's a, it's not just, it's not asking why Satan it's, it's going to explain to you why people would choose this path. I think it has a very light touch. It's very funny and it doesn't fall in, into any of the traps I expected with a, a Satanist documentary. There's like no, um, it's not very harsh on them. It's not condemning of a lifestyle. It just explores what it is and shows it to you as it exists today. And and the people they have at the the front of it of the movement and kind of organizing things are really interesting characters yeah. in and of themselves. Like the main guy, his name is uh, Lucian Greaves. Like I kind of I I envy his coolness in many ways because he can just like take all of this shit and just like not not care and also you know put off this aloofness to everything there. There's there's a really funny bit in there where he's like you know he's fighting against this uh, Arkansas. I think it's the, the governor of Arkansas or whatever. You know they're trying to expose the hypocrisy of them like erecting a 10 commandments statue yeah, right. on government grounds and in doing so they're petitioning to put up their baphomet statue like, next to it <laughs> as a representation of you know equal yeah. you know religious things so there's not a bias Brilliant. one way and and there's a point where like the governor is like calling around he's like this guy you know lucian grace that's not even his real name it's like you know D- darren something or whatever it is you know and, and then they just like they cut back to him he's like that's not my real name either <laughs> he's got like layered pseudonyms and it's very funny he's you know i think he's a great figurehead for it yeah absolutely i, I did also love like the bit where it goes into a little bit of connectivity with uh, our our discussion here as well and that the these 10 commandment statues you know these uh you know things they, they put up uh, on lots of different government properties all over uh, they originated from a, a campaign for Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, which, <laughs> like, like it's just an advertising campaign where they sent these out all yeah. over. They have, like, Charlton Heston or whatever go and, like, promote them and, and give a speech at the unveiling. <laughs> and so, like, just this this ludicrous idea that this, um, you know, people are investing so much in a, a movie <laughs> advertising stunt. <laughs> It's yeah, it's brilliant to just get at the really the silliness of how they justify their their symbols and um and it's it's not that much sillier to make a, a statue of a demon. At least it fucking looks cool. Yeah, the the only thing I'll say like uh with, with the documentaries, I was a little disappointed with it in the end because it does yeah. have to kind of force a, a kind of arc and conclusion for the story there it doesn't that, get an ending not a natural yeah, one yeah yeah they kind of have to force a victory and it feels a little hollow because like the whole thing they're fighting the whole time is to get this baphomet statue up next to the ten commandments so they're fighting in the courts and stuff to do so and uh the, the end and like the the victory that they kind of celebrate is not that success but like holding a rally and unveiling the statue because the whole time like the in the documentary they're building up and showing like different parts of the the statue being built which is great and then the yeah. end is the big reveal of it but it's not like what you aim to do it's you know like it's just a protest at the grounds of the capital where you're showing off the statue and it's yeah, like it's a it's a periphery thing it doesn't really land in the context of everything it's set up or anything yeah like like but at the same time it's like you can't you know, in a documentary like this, you can't force a greater right. ending. Like, you can't twist it so that they did, you know, get the, the Ten Commandments statue taken down or they got the Baphomet up or whatever. Like, that's literally not what happened. So, you know, I mean, like, you got to take your victories where you can. But it is kind of a hollow victory. It feels like it's not the ending of that story. 
unless you're Werner Herzog, you can't just go film people. Like uh, most people don't get anything when they go to make a documentary. So it's really surprising when you get anything and can piece together any narrative, I find. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was, yeah, overall, I found it like a really inspiring, well-structured uh, documentary yeah. with lots of insight uh, and, and, a, and a good perspective. It gave the history of things as well and the, the different sides. Um, and of course, like I said, it was, it was just very entertaining overall, very humorous and, and uh, <laughs> insightful and convincing, like as far as if it's a, you know, like a, a work to get me on board with the, the satanic temple. I'm there. I'm, you know, like give me a form to, to sign up. Hail Satan. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, thanks for the report. That's a uh, why Satan really great doc. Uh, we both recommend it now. Um, <laughs> it's rare for us both to align on a new movie. So it's great when we have that opportunity. Yeah. That, that one's a fairly newer. I, I should have caught it when it came out. Uh, yeah. I definitely kind of regret missing that one, but uh, happy to watch it now. Uh, I saw it on, <laughs> Hulu if anyone wants to check it out as well oh fantastic there's a there's a lot of new movies that uh I'm, I'm kind of done with it after this award season um, <laughs> I feel like I've delved into all the movies the the advantage of last year is I feel like I saw everything um our uh, Seattle Film Critics Society nominations went up uh this week and there's three things I haven't seen so uh, I I took that advantage last year that uh uh, lack of movies I saw all of them that seem to have mattered to us um, I guess I could just go through some of them should I just start with our best picture that seems like the 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 big topic here yeah uh, I'm excited to hear about all of these because I know it's kind of a tougher year to track down everything and most people you know who don't have access to like screeners and such like uh, you or you know we do here uh, you know it, yeah it, what do you watch yeah, uh, there, there was probably like, per personally, I watched like four or five movies from last year and uh, very few of them I liked, like a, a <laughs> only one. And again, that was a, a documentary. So, you know, yeah, not but a yeah, real let's, movie. Let's hear, let's hear what all of us besides you missed last year. Uh, for our best picture, we have First Cow, Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton, interesting. It's the only category it got in was best picture. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Invisible Man, Judas and the Black Messiah, which I know I think you're seeing this week, right? Yeah, um, I am. Uh, I got a screener for that. Uh, through, oh, fantastic! Through my theater here, so that that was really cool. But again, it's you know it's one of those things where and not a lot of other people can see it right now. <laughs> we also have a uh, Minari, never, rarely, sometimes, always, which I've been fighting for since early last year. I fucking love that movie. Um, Nomadland, which should still be hitting everywhere uh, within the next couple weeks. Palm Springs, uh, Promising Young Woman, and Sound of Metal. Those are our nominations for Best Picture. Mm, that, yeah, from what I've heard when you've discussed a lot of these films and stuff, those are some pretty standout picks, like for everyone yeah. out there saying that 2020 didn't have anything. That's just because they watched, you know, <laughs> Mank and like The Five um, Bloods and maybe yeah. Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> I mean, if I'm thinking of ending things is your is your big hit of the year from home, I, I don't see how it could have been a good year, you know? It's yeah. Again, this is uh, this was a year not of the big name hitters as we kind of talked with Pavlos last week. You know, we highlighted yeah. all the kind of you know missteps of the big name auteurs on streaming and such, and more for the the indie films this year who you know they kind of all flew under the radar because uh, distribution advertising was even worse. You know, during the, these COVID times when it really should have flourished. You know, like that should have been the, <laughs> yeah. the, the easiest films to access, but because it's just so hard to get the word out there about them. You know it's uh you know so a lot of them just went by 
Yeah, they went by while well, Tiger King became the the biggest <laughs> success of, of 2020, appropriately. Um, the I I guess documentaries are the category I feel strongest about here. I'm so happy with what we what we picked in that section, especially. Um, I think it's great that we got the Seattle Mariners doc, which I don't even think I've got to talk about here, but uh, more, more recently became one of my favorite docs of the year. It's like a PowerPoint presentation all with blue background, but uh, three or four hours long, and it goes through the whole history, the cursed history of Seattle Mariners. And it's not a sports doc that's like very concerned with who wins the games. Um, it's concerned about legacy and character of the people and the mythology of sports fans, what keeps them rooting even against all odds. Like what attracts someone like Ichiro or Ken Griffey yeah. Jr. to a city like Seattle? I, w- I was going to say, uh, as a as a person who lived in the Seattle area for the majority of my, my life and was aware of the, the Mariners and whatnot and the kind of spirit they imbued the city with, uh, it was mostly just Ken Griffey Jr. and Ichiro <laughs> Suzuki that I was aware of. I even went to a couple of Mariners games at some points, but uh, I, I don't have a lot of affection for baseball as a sport, sadly. <laughs> I think I have an affection more for the atmosphere of going to the game and like the old uh, Mariners broadcast. Of course, we had Dave Niehaus, who was like one of the greatest broadcasters in sports, just like that voice. Um, what, him announcing when Griffey hits it out of the park, you know, his going, going, gone is just so, so remarkable. Um, the way that he could keep you entertained. And it was like almost a the- theatrical performance of a baseball game. Um, right? That's like my mental image of what baseball is. When it, when it comes to American institutions, I'm, I'm more likely to defend them than, than, you know, kind of come out and poo-poo all over them. But yeah. I have no problem saying how boring baseball is to watch because it's, it's a very long game and there's a lot of sitting around and waiting for things to happen. The ball is super tiny. It's hard to keep track of, <laughs> it is you know, it's, 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 I'm, it's much more fun to play than it is to watch. So I don't get the fervor around it at all. And, and I'm more than happy to crown football as, you know, the, the true American sport. Now baseball, you know, that was more 20th century shit. We can move on now. <laughs> I, I think for me, it's just like, it's the atmosphere of the game, the the players that were here in Seattle. I don't, I don't even think I really love baseball, but I love that team and that uh, myth of the city. And uh, even despite all their losses, they built something really special with a group of guys. I don't um, know what's, what's ever going to happen if you move away from Seattle for whatever reason. <laughs> like if you just happen to end up somewhere else, someone gave you a job in New York or something, you're going to come like a, a Mets fan or something. And like your whole world is going to be turned upside down because you'll have to change your identity completely. You'll be like an East coast person. We get transferred to like Milwaukee and <laughs> I'm like a Brewers fan. What am I going to do? <laughs> Milwaukee. I, I I won't know who you are anymore. It'd be really weird. Like all, all I know is like, I'm like Calvin, his entire personality is wrapped up in where he lives. <laughs> I, I just say it shaped a lot of things about me. I love, you know, I like going down to Safeco. Safeco. I don't love it. Like I love the kingdom, but like is it, getting is that it still called Safeco. I thought it's, it's like T-Mobile now. field now. Something um, like that. It's always, it's Safeco field. We know it's Safeco field. CenturyLink might've changed too, but that's the football field. Uh, okay, Safeco yeah. or T-Mobile fields right next to that. can i talk about this phenomenon as well like it never occurred to me like growing up that safeco field like that was the name of the 
people advertising the stadium and the team. <laughs> like it just seemed like the name that it had. Like yeah. I was like, oh, Safeco is a is a company that's it's, investing into this, and that's why it's named after them. It's weird because our hockey arena will be unique in that it's not going to be Amazon, although they paid all the money. It'll just be Climate Pledge. Like that's the only one like that. I can't think of another example where it's not the uh, company. Is, isn't Wrigley Field still called Wrigley Field? Like that's like a Rig- famous one. Wrigley gum? What is it? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it Wrigley is. It could be is. something. <laughs> Maybe they make shoes or something. I don't know. Uh, Wrigley's uh, Wrigley Field, also a nice place. I've only walked around it, but uh, I'd say in Boston, of course, Fenway Park is the one that I was like, holy shit, this is a great park. Like You get the energy when you're in a place like that that Seattle doesn't have. Um, Seattle, like you go to a game, it's completely empty unless it's like Blue Jays or or someone that needs like a Northwest fan base to come to a game. Then it's a, then it's, it's all a, Blue Jay fan. It's a nice stadium still. That was the last place yeah. I went and saw a concert pre-COVID times. I saw Foo Fighters there. Oh, yeah. It's a good place for shows. Um, I, of course, like Griffey was opposed to Safeco because they made the fence longer. The weird thing about baseball is like every um, – Every stadium can be shaped differently. Uh, they all have different dimensions of the field. So some are easier to hit homers in, some are harder. Uh, some have different light, of course. Um, and just like the atmosphere was kind of gone from the kingdom, which was a, a good stadium, but uh, uh, the roof fell in a couple of times. So they had to demolish that. <laughs> and we had one called Sick Field. And there's all this, you know, all these problems with Seattle stadiums. Uh, we're just destined to fail, but we keep succeeding in, in character-driven ways. So that's really interesting. It's almost like there's a pattern with poor infrastructure in the city. Yeah, like like we lost our – it's almost like we lost our original hockey team to Spanish flu, and then we're launching into a pandemic this year. <laughs> See what happens. Yeah, uh, yeah so documentaries. <laughs> uh, Boys State, also good. Uh, but, yeah, check out uh, Seattle Film Critics on Twitter. Uh, a lot of great posts there now. Yeah, uh, and next week I think we'll have all the results in of the actual winners. We just have the, the nominees right now. But I'm so glad that you guys were able to kind of push ahead and, and find some some real <laughs> gems here this year still, despite all of the you know barriers to overcome. If I don't bring it up again, it's because Mank won everything. <laughs> so <laughs> if we're silent next week, uh, you have the reasons. If Mank wins everything, we're just we're shutting the podcast down. <laughs> it's yeah, not worth uh, doing anymore. <laughs> I don't know if it's worth looking at movies anymore if that happens. Uh, <laughs> Go first, Cal. Uh, I hope all our folks vote uh, for good things. <laughs> we have good options in every category. And, uh, you know, uh, a couple that are there because the year was light. Um, so let's not choose those. Uh, I have uh, one other thing, if we want to go into it. Yeah, I'm I'm listening. I'm here for it. Uh, I don't got anything else to do, so hit me. I watched an indie show uh, from filmmakers you never heard of called freaks and geeks oh freaks and geeks that uh it's a, definitely an unknown show i believe it kind of kind of more of a cult thing definitely nobody's ever heard of it besides no. me and you i think you've heard of it uh yeah, oh, i've seen a little bit it's been a long time uh from indie filmmakers paul feige fiji and um <laughs> paul fiji and uh what's this other guy's name it has this uh Seth Rogan in it. Uh, Seth Rogan is he? Is he the like the the hair growing guy? Yeah, yeah. Joe Rogan. <laughs> he doesn't have hair. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Judd Apatui also never heard of these people, so 
you'll have to tell me if I'm getting the names wrong. Um, really cool show. I, I didn't know what to expect. I, I think like stuff like Saved by the Bell and all these high school stuff that's in the classroom. Um, in weird ways, these shows romanticize high school and they or they romanticize like a school life and they make it seem like a good time of life. Uh, I, I love Freaks and Geeks because it's all like fucking burnouts and everyone's miserable. And <laughs> it's really about like the inherent awkwardness of living in that stage of puberty where you're forced to go and interact with people for eight hours a day. <laughs> like, fuck. I'm, I'm surprised you never came across before. This seems like it was, it was of your time and, and like right up your alley. It's got a very grungy aesthetic to it too. You know, the, the character yeah. designs and such. Yeah. This seems like absolutely something you'd love. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that uh, you're, you're digging this a lot. Uh, the, I guess like the biggest surprise of it is that this is the, only noteworthy thing of paul feig's career you ask me <laughs> it could be true it was um, entirely downhill from here i think it might be the uh jude apatui that's having more influence than the paul fiji you, um, can, you can definitely feel the the judd apatowness of it apatui oh yeah. uh appetite um especially with the inclusion <laughs> of like you know you got james franco seth rogan jason seagal martin star they're all big you fucking know, cool yeah and they, they're all like this was like their big break and stuff and then they'd come to you know kind of help be big comedy names in the you know late uh, 2000s and such so i guess my hot take for it is that it didn't need another season i feel like it's always on a list of oh why didn't this show get continued like uh, every every list like that is like oh firefly and freaks and geeks i think <laughs> one season is fucking great like uh, i don't know what the impact would have been after this like one year of school because all these kids are firstly in different years from each other so uh some of these kids would graduate and move on you bring in a new cast of characters but then is that really worth following i mean uh, I think like the freaks are, are the main part of the show. You lose any of those guys. I think the show goes downhill immediately. I don't know why you continue it. So I it's, think it's a blessing in one way. It's always like when you're working in that in, environment where you have like uh, high schoolers in a show and that's like kind of the main appeal, like you're stuck in a situation where it's <laughs> yeah. like, you can't get that much older. Like this can't go on for that much longer. Because, it's like community, right? <laughs> right. Well, like com they community gets away with it a, a little bit more because they're, they're already inherently older. Like if you're in a high school show, you're already employing people who are not high schoolers, you know? So you're already kind of stretching the, the believability here by casting, you know, people in their, their twenties as like 16 year olds. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like in a case with community, if you go too long, you're like, uh, okay, I guess Jeff has to become a teacher now. <laughs> And that's that's the arc of the show. We're we're definitely on the downswing here. Yeah, it's it's just really cool though. I love the uh, I love the geek kids who worship Stripes and Bill Murray. <laughs> There's like such specific things to go and like be like Stripes is the one good movie. I can't date a girl who doesn't like Stripes. Like like he picks the girl he thinks is the hottest in the school. Suddenly they're dating, but she won't laugh at Stripes. Like like that's the the cutoff for him. <laughs> uh, that kind of stuff is funny and. Um, I feel like I relate more to the freaks, though. I, I think those are fun characters with more depth than than they do with the geeks, who are just pretty normal uh, foils for for everyone else. Mm -hmm. Well, also, I think geek culture has evolved a lot since that time since, period. Yeah, uh, I think it would be very different today, and it wouldn't be as funny. I think this takes a lot of risks, and it's able to get away with uh, some faux pas that wouldn't go now. So, oh yeah, uh, it's a 
it's a pretty great, you know, small little show. You know, you should check it out if you uh, can. Uh, and, and and I think I agree that like any more would have probably been too much. You know, you only got so much runway with this. We say like one season, but shows used to be fucking long. It's still like 20 episodes long. So it's yeah. still, you know, Netflix runs eight, eight series shows. I mean, it's still got basically what would be equivalent to a full run today um, in some way, which is just a three season run, eight episodes each. It's around there. Yeah, uh, approximately that. It's yeah. uh yeah, it's it's more than we think. Yeah, like cuz there used to be a time where, you know, even just slightly earlier than that where you'd have like 24 episode seasons or something. Yeah. Some of those is, cartoons yeah. ran every week like the whole year, man. Like, yeah. Fuck. And now uh, we're like waiting 2 years between seasons of Rick and Morty who only churn out like 5 episodes each time. Which is probably good. You look at stuff like the like South Park documentary. It's like they were just like run into the ground doing an episode every week. They didn't have that much to create. Uh, yeah, well, it's like the same thing. You're gonna run into like if you keep going forever, you're gonna have like a Simpsons problem or whatever. Where, yeah, you know, uh, who are people still watching that? By the way, like they must be because it's still going. But you know, I think they just watch it because they always have. I, I think that's the only reason they uh, still do. I admire something like when when. Uh, jerry seinfeld ended his show like he got to season nine and he's like i'm stopping here this is yeah. this is the the end you know i want to go out on a on a good note here and it was <laughs> and it was right when the series was starting to waver too so you know it was a good time to kind of close up the book on it and move on to to new things you know we i think as consumers we always want more especially when we really like the these characters or these stories or whatever that we've invested in but it's it's not smart to keep going when you know you really should just uh end it but then again you you got the inverse problem where like uh if you're game of thrones for instance and you when you rush the ending <laughs> yeah everyone's gonna revolt against you because you you fucked it up yeah you could ruin the whole show so i think it's better just to go out like this uh, i don't think it's bittersweet at all but also that's because i have a whole history now of apatow movies to be like thank fuck you went and made all those because if you didn't take yeah. like martin uh uh what's his name martin short martin star Mar martin star martin, martin short star. martin short's the guy in the third santa claus movie that's right <laughs> <laughs> if he didn't take martin star and go make uh some of those movies or seth rogan seth rogan uh, <laughs> or james franco uh i don't think we would have uh i don't think we'd have that much of a significant output if if you were put on this show i feel like actors spend a lot of their careers just wasted on shows Right. But at the same time, we also like to complain about the kind of comedy, the loud, you know, brashness of the 2000s that kind of Judd Apatow spearheaded. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you get 40 year old virgin and then it kind of just like drops after that. Like that's that's kind of the peak of the Apatow style comedy. And then like now this this wave of comedy that we're kind of working in now is uh, you know, dried up. <laughs> I'm one of those funny people fans though. I'm one of those once he becomes self-reflective and is making comments about himself, I think he's even funnier. Uh weirdly my favorite Adam Sandler funny people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um but yeah, I agree. It's a it's a good show worth checking yeah. out. Um, you know, for all those people who don't know about this, you know, uh, forgotten classic that nobody that ever talks nobody's about. ever it's never made a list of forgotten classics before nobody so. is nobody's even heard of this show uh yeah. in fact uh me and you are the first people to to recognize it in any kind of capacity that's why we're here to discover the old work of filmmakers um yeah and uh, where they uh, made it yeah so just just like freaks and geeks uh, after this break here we'll be back with another uh unheralded classic that nobody's talked about uh urge slubich and uh to be or not to be Lubin with the geeks. <laughs> 
to be or not to be and it's more of a statement than a question wouldn't you say Uh, i mean that is the question isn't it whether you know to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune yes (laughs) yes yes uh (laughs) don't kill yourself kids that's that's the lesson of uh hamlet that's the that's the funny thing i I think talking about that that scene in uh lubich's film to be or not to be uh it's it's not as funny if you don't understand how bad joseph turin is is an actor because Mm -hmm. that's that's the, the whole point of that speech is hamlet is like weighing whether or not to kill himself like because he can't take <laughs> what's going on and he just comes out like on the stage with this book he's like to be or not to be and it's just so <laughs> wooden and flat and it's like you don't have any idea what this is and if you don't know that that's what the hamlet speech is then and then i think part of that joke is totally lost on you again like the, the yeah. idea that the jack benny's character is He's not just a terrible actor. He's an outrageously awful actor. <laughs> I think that's what's so funny is that this troupe just isn't that talented and they're still able to get in and, and they still accurately represent, you know, what would be like Nazis. I mean, like the cartoonishness is not even outsized by reality. It matches it. Have, have you ever heard of that great, great Polish actor, Joseph Tura? <laughs> <laughs> uh, many good quotes <laughs> It's yeah. So this is definitely one of the most uh, outrageously funny films of not only Lubitsch's career, but like of the entire uh, classic Hollywood era here. And uh, I think one of the boldest as well. Um, mm. We touched on it at the beginning there, but you you did not know going in that this was a film about Nazis. It's a How comedy could I? about Nazis, uh, and it was made in 1942. That's the thing. What the fuck. <laughs> Yeah, it's not it's not the first to do that. Um, you know, Hollywood yeah, but... <laughs> was kind of already gearing up at the end of the 30s and into the 40s here, kind of like, all right, now we're taking a stance against the Nazis now that, you know, Britain's actually at war with them and they've invaded Czechoslovakia and stuff. It's, you know, all right, you know, maybe these guys are a little more serious. So they started, like, they cut off ties with Germany, you know, and they, uh, they started producing, Warner Brothers first was kind of the first studio parts to start producing the uh, anti-German propaganda against them. And, like, I think, like, the first, you know, big uh, comedy in terms of that they kind of sought to lampoon the Nazis were, was from Chaplin. But even with the, the great dictator, you don't feel it has the same bite or awareness of the, the horrors of, of the Nazis and how ridiculous they are in the same vein that Lubitsch does here. Great Dictator is still a fantastic film and prescient in his own manner, but to be or not to be feels like even more elevated than that. I feel like the ingenuity of it is what people call like Lubitsch touches that it's so balanced between lightness that uh, it doesn't feel offensive or hard to watch. Like, uh, I I guess even in the 40s, although I've read that critics were uh, very worried about it, um, I'd guess that it was, it's still lightness. I mean, it's still the funniest movie because uh, it's fucking funny. How, how can't you laugh at the uh, Hitler impersonator? Uh, hail myself. Come hail on. myself. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's funny. So at the at the time, uh, it was uh, I guess a touch controversial because it's like you're you're making fun of this regime that is murdering people and causing wars and invading all these countries. Uh, at a time like this was right when the United States was getting involved as well, so like it became like actually serious. Yeah. And uh, it was also coming off like it, it it had a really hard time getting advertising because uh, uh, I, I was going to get into this later, but uh, the star Carol Lombard 
died in a plane crash a couple of months before the oh, film really? release. Yeah, she Fuck. was she was selling war bonds in like Chicago and she okay. went to go meet up with her husband Clark Gable. She was flying home to see him as quickly as possible and so she got on an army plane and it uh, crashed into a mountain. Wow. And yeah, uh, it's 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 fucking dark and uh horrifying and, and very very sad. Uh but you know so this is her final performance. Wow, she's, she's great. Yeah, and she's wonderful in, in so many other film she was such a, a queen of the screwball comedy and really helped kind of champion it throughout the 30s and such and this is i think her her tour, tour de force here but yeah it's a it's kind of a de- depressing little you know uh footnote yeah. with the film here and so like that like the fact that your star just you know died in a horrific manner like a couple months before the film came out plus the controversial nature of its subject made it a really really hard sell like if you well, yeah. like i said go look at look at the poster for the film and you, you'd have no idea what it's about the title doesn't indicate that it's anyway about lampooning nazis and stuff <laughs> i and, think that's what uh, distracted me um well, I always assume Lubitsch touch just meant that he's very light and silver screeny and he makes the screen look silver. I didn't I didn't realize he covered real things. I mean, yeah, well, the, the Lubitsch touches this kind of interesting. Uh, first of all, it's kind of uh, made up as an advertising yeah. campaign, obviously. So there's a bit of cynicism to that. But, it but is, uh, we take it to it because it's, it's <laughs> we take to it because it's something that's reflected in the movies. Right. We there feel there it, is. So. There is an inherent magic to Lubitsch's film, something unique about it, you know, about his approach to comedy that really paved the way for many of the other, you know, uh, comedians to come, particularly like, you know, famously Billy Wilder had a sign in his office throughout his entire career that said, how would Lubitsch do it? You know, he did. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Was, well, yeah. He, he loved Lubitsch. Lubitsch was his, his mentor and he really molded himself in the in the vein of his style and such and uh what's what's kind of characteristically about lubitsch's films uh that's a little different here in to be or not to be is that usually he has this great balance of you know comedic lightness and suggestiveness there's a kind of subtle perversity to his uh comedy especially a lot of the earlier ones you know the 30s films uh i, I think the earlier example is like uh what's it called a uh, trouble in paradise where mm-hmm. it's very much like kind of like, like a bedroom uh comedy and there it's all very suggestive and you know yeah. innuendo laden but it still maintains a classiness to it it's got this you know uh you know very refined quality to the to the style and the subject matter you know a lot of his films deal with those kind of uh upper crust you know individuals and stuff which is why to be or not to be is such a divergent film for him and it and it does really feel like a, a bold step because it is again it's very involved in the in the politics of the day and is unafraid of embracing it wholeheartedly um i i've been surprised continually as i go through his stuff each movie has surprised me for different reasons actually uh which is really nice um and going between as you say innuendo and uh sincerity at like the most earnest level with like shop around the corner mm-hmm. to uh very uh funny um I'd say very relevant current social stuff in, uh, how do you say it? Uh, Ninochka? Is that, yep. is that about Ninochka. right? Yeah. Which, which was I written, fucking loved. <laughs> which was written by Billy Wilder and yeah. Charles Brackett, by the way. Which I see all your complaints about that it, it doesn't go the right way eventually, but the, the first half is so brilliant. And oh, yeah. One definitely. of the funniest women performances I, I've seen. Just, she's Girl, so fantastic. Yeah, Garbo, obviously, she's a legend in her own right. This was, like, very very much advertised as this big, you know, her step in foray into comedy. And she's really divine in it. Uh, I just have a couple of 
beast yeah. with it in terms of, like direction like, it, it never reaches the heights it does at the beginning with her character as it kind of like normalizes and americanizes her more as it goes along but it has that interesting thread of comedy you know the the commentary with the uh you know the the soviets and stuff going on which uh you know billy wilder would also kind of expand on later in uh one two three in the 60s in a similar manner but yeah all of his comedies are, are really fantastic like that uh but i, I, I think of say... garbo like laughing at the table after he he's fallen off his stool it's uh just one of the funniest things uh, her character so great it does have that like let's tame the communist spirit to it which is a little weird but uh yeah, you know, it, make, it makes sense for the time again, like yeah. combating it. It's a, it was a piece of you know propaganda, just this idea, but but like in, a, in an entertaining and uh, you know interesting kind of way on it. It wasn't just like ah, oh, communist bad. It's like yeah. it's you know it's appraising the values of capitalism against you know the 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 woes and failings of of communism, which you know modern takes might be a little different in terms of their you know glowing uh perspective on capitalism but uh i I just think it's so great because even right now everything's so heated when you bring up a word like communism and have something yeah of course and have something from 39 that's just like communism's kind of funny let's let's have fun with that shit i i think that's brilliant yeah, and again, it's those, it's those big buzzwords, you know, that yeah. we just demonized communism out the gates, not entirely, you know, un, undeservedly, but yeah. So it is nice to see some actual more like nuanced approaches to breaking it down. And again, I think you, you see that here, you know, on the other end with, with fascism and, and to be or not to be and tackling and ridiculing the likes of Hitler and the Gestapo, you know, and all of their their pomp and such that goes into it, which the film is just so brilliant at, at slaying. You know, it, it really <laughs> takes the Nazis and just entirely makes a farce out of them. Without without defanging them, I should yeah, say. Without well, ever defanging there, there are there's lots of moments of real like drama in this, you know, hysterical film. Uh one of the, I think the novel things about it is that people die in this comedy like people get murdered and that's like that does not really happen in these films in such a kind of explicit way like when when they're on the stage chasing around the double agent uh the doctor uh you know and they shoot him like he it really gives a moment like it, it lets you sit with his death for for a second there in a very serious way and i think that gives it a, a much more you know a greater power than you would normally expect from it and you know they play the seriousness of the invasion of, of poland you know completely straight and and i think it's a very delicate balance that's handled beautifully that's not easy to do in such a zany you know comedy such as this he did to shakespeare what we're doing to poland just just <laughs> one of the great quotes of the early comedy uh, so many of those too and you're right, so many of it slays because it, it's so on point and it is able to inflect drama in meaningful ways. Because they're bad actors, really, you have to be a good actor to act that badly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, Jack, Benny Jack just Benny. fucking incredible here. <laughs> He's so great, and, and he's yeah. got this this great ego to to his actor here, where he's like so involved with himself. Like again, like the whole whole setup here is that he has, you know, he's so dejected because this guy gets up in the middle of his speech, and he's like, you know, I just want to, you know, I hope he he dies and suffers for all of this. And he's like, he's so involved with it, and he's afraid that his wife is cheating on him. And that and that I think is the more like typical Lubitsch aspect, like the relationship between. Uh, Carol Lombard and like the the one trooper and you know the professor Slesky like all the suggestiveness of her like essentially sleeping with them to you know <laughs> being an agent herself and all that it's all really fantastic and Lubitschian 
I think it's so important that it is it does have a Shakespearean title because for me it could play just like a Shakespearean play itself. I mean it it probably is taken like from Merchant of Venice and uh, a few others. Oh, yeah. I'm not an expert on the Bard by any means. So. No, that in that aspect where it's taking from uh, Merchant of Venice, and it's particularly playing into those Jewish Jewish central themes with the the famous speech from uh, Shylock that's right. uh, utilized throughout it. You know, have we not? You know, uh, you know, if you prick us, do we not bleed and such? Uh, you know, and and it hones in on that important aspect and kind of like uses it as a, a tool to empower. You know the the very, very Jewish central voice of the film, particularly coming from Lubitsch, like his background as a German emigre coming over and reflecting on what's happening with Nazism is such a potent aspect of the film. And that perspective like cannot be ignored in terms of its its crucial uh, uh, flavor and the prescience it lends to the film. Like I know these quotes, and I know Shylock, but I haven't like read Merchant of Venice since high school. So I can't like tell you like what the beats are even. Mm. Um, so for me, like I think it it reflects to me as a whole movie that plays like a Shakespeare play in a way. Um, it all works for me in that fundamentally funny way that that's both like, caustic but very funny and cutting. I well, it shows uh, how like pliable Shakespeare is to so many right. things. Like we 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 think about all these modern interpretations of Shakespeare, and even at the time, like there's a great parallel with uh you know in the 30s, uh, Orson Welles did a a Nazi inspired version of Julius Caesar you know, in a similar way to expose the, you know, tyrannical nature of, of Hitler and, you know, the, the regime going on there as they were rising up. Um, and, and so this is very much in the kind of same vein as that and using the Shakespearean text to, you know, uh, echo through to the, the relevance of today. Uh, it's all over uh, the film particularly. And so that, that background you have, like I said in the beginning, that awareness, you know, that you have with the, the text it's you know in conversation with i think is a crucial part in appreciating the film even more but even if you don't know shakespeare in any way the film is still hysterical and poignant and you know biting as hell yeah it is i i love a good cutting biting film a good i'll say a good cutting film that's also anti-fascist in a very meaningful yeah. way De definitely probably the, the most anti-fascist film you know of the yeah. time like this came out the same year as casablanca which i think is fantastic what, what a great pair <laughs> i haven't thought closely about that uh what a weird pair of propagandas uh, yeah. very interesting yeah but they're i think they're so effective at being not not just that kind of anti you know german propaganda you know anti-fascist but also just these great works of art in their respective fields and such but yeah, you know that would, to, that would be a good ass double bill by the way i, I might know. have to cancel that in one day yeah that would be a great double feature to show that you know the the peak of anti-fascism in hollywood damn <laughs> okay but yeah uh the, the comedy is just so funny and uh you know the characters in particular i think are, are so great and the, the bits they have we, we already talked about uh jack benny a bit uh but you know he really just you know, he commands the show the entire time here when he's disguised up as the doctor after they kill him and he's hanging out and you know, like he's talking with <laughs> like the, the whole scene actually when, when they're first dressed in their, their Nazi regalia and, and they've tricked him to come to the theater as the kind of Nazi headquarters and they're talking with, uh, you know, as he's posing as uh, 
Colonel Earhart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so they call me Concentration Camp Earhart. <laughs> <laughs> Concentration Camp Earhart, one of the great quotes too. Oh, uh, it's it's so funny in the, in the repetition of it. He just he keeps going back in like and he's like, I don't know what to say anymore. <laughs> and it understands back. that about comedic beats that a lot of movies miss is when to time it and when to bring something back around. It really is an, an, an expert in that uh, in terms of the timing and, and the re- reusing of jokes. Like when they come back around, they have Sig Ruman saying the same thing as, as him. It's, it's very funny. Like uh, the, the greatness of everyone saying Hill Hitler and the way that they say it, it, it remarkably turns that into several jokes of timing, right? Like it, once he says Hail myself, it's very funny because we've, we've got that the whole movie and it's, it's always establishing these trends that it'll come back to. Very funny. Mm-hmm. Well, it's one of those uh, interesting things as well. I think that actually translates to um, you know real uh, like, like real things that were going on at the time, uh, particularly like the the Heil Hitler thing, like you were talking about uh, the 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 ridiculousness of that often repeated phrase. You know that that was so ludicrous that it actually led to the the discovery the breaking of the Turing code, which was you know like the Nazis' code was so complicated, but they were able to decipher it. Because each one of their telegrams ended in the same phrase. It all ended right. in Heil Hitler. So it's very easy to decode from there afterwards once they broke it. And so yeah, that, that makes that, sense. That's one of the ridiculous things that you see in the film that translates to what was actually happening there. Like, it, so when they make a farce or a total ridiculous display of the Nazis, it's not entirely inflated. It really was no. like that, that ridiculous. But it, again, preserving that, that danger that they present. I, I think it's funny because they're already cartoons. They're already worth the mockery because they present themselves as mockeries and grotesque already. So uh, mm-hmm. very, I think it's really easy. I, I mean, I, he doesn't take any easy routes here, but um, what you're saying about codes and letters too, I think it does a lot with presenting information through like these letters that are passed around. Uh, there's like a complex love triangle and there's a really complex story about poland in here and and this uh comedic troupe like there's a lot going on and it it's able to manage a lot of information with past notes and uh, things that were really aspects of, of that time and shows you how characters could get away with things uh just under the nose of nazis mm-hmm. there's a lot of layers to the stories lots of i think a, a big cast as well and it's interesting how the film balances that not only do you have like the central dynamic between carol lombard and jack benny but of course you've got the big nazi characters and stuff you know the the professor you've got colonel Earhart, and then you've got like the rest of the troop who are doing their things like the guy who's uh you know he, he's doing the you know he's uh, as hitler and he's trying to have his his big moment and that's a big <laughs> <His arc>. mustache <laughs> and yes. it's not quite right it, it just covers just a little bit under his <laughs> nose and and they keep looking at the picture but that's a portrait of myself <laughs> yes that's a great picture. it's the still beginning, not right then <laughs> the beginning is hilarious it's a it's a hilarious introduction to what's going on and then it comes back around at the finale where he has to you know use his hitler disguise to help get them out and everything <laughs> Which, uh, you see a ton of Tarantino there, a ton of Inglorious Bastards. Oh yeah, this is this is a huge influence on Tarantino. But perhaps like it's almost this... a remake in a way. Fuck. Well, that's that's the thing I was going to lead up to that the film led to an actual remake. Like this the film, Mel Brooks more, more than anyone, it inspired Mel Brooks. Like a couple of those lines you repeated, like you know, uh, how how myself. That's like a whole song number in the producers that he mm-hmm. produced on Broadway. It's literally called that. The whole you know what he did to to Shakespeare you know, we're doing to Poland, they, they take that same thing and use it in the producers as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's a line about, 
Hamlet as well. You know, the same yeah. exact thing. Like he, uh, Mel Brooks cribs so much from Lubitsch and in this film in particular, and you could see that influence and how effective it is, uh, you know, in his filmography. And again, carrying on that, you know, very central Jewish legacy from from one filmmaker to the next and that important voice and combating the fascism and the horrors of Nazis with, with the ridicule is the most, you know, potent tool they have at, you know, breaking down the, the veil of power that the Nazis, you know, put forth. <laughs> and maybe still is. We look at things like death of Stalin still very important to, to make these kinds of movies, even if much less successfully. <laughs> well, and the important thing with it is that, you know, unlike, and, and there's a lot of great, uh, you know, deconstructions of this and discussions but you know basically to summarize is that what farce does here is that they can't like like new groups can't repurpose the imagery being put here into being something of admiration like you Mm -hmm. can't uh, like unlike something like say i think uh, american history x is an example of a film that despite its message you know and the the commentary it provides has been co-opted by neo-nazis you know for all the, the imagery it presents and such uh, and this is not something you can do with it because it's so ridiculous, you know, everything like there's there's no way you can take this film and interpret it in any other way than a complete ridicule of, of the Nazis never involved, like because they're all shown to be is like like totally incompetent, you know, it, Yeah, they're all incompetence here and they look like literal cartoons. Oh, well, and you see and again, like and it's all and it rings true, like one of my favorite aspects is that the the uh colonel Earhart's character you know from sigruman like he's constantly shifting the blame like the matter is like he's trying to take things but but, but when he's like accused of <laughs> the whole the whole sequence in which like they they've found you know the the dead colonel and they <laughs> they they've tricked uh you know joseph turo to come back in still dressed up as him and they confirmed him with the dead body just sitting there and like he's he's got this like you know boastfulness about the whole thing and they're like no no let him sit with it and then he, he comes up with the genius ploy to to switch the, the like he shaves off his beard and he puts in like pull on his beard and, and the whole like reversal it's just a hilarious sequence as it unfolds and, and i think a very ingenious way of like solving that problem it really feels like when when they get there that he's like totally screwed in the way that he he finds out about it. it's great and Sigurdman's reactions throughout it are totally hilarious. He keeps blaming what's his name, it's like Schultz throughout. Yeah. Schultz. <laughs> and I thought I didn't think that I would uh, I would be in awe of how entertaining Lubitsch really is. I haven't had any misses yet at all. I mean, there, I've enjoyed everything. Um, there's a couple from what I've I've watched that have been a little more. Mixed. You weren't as all- high on uh, Heaven Can Wait, were you? No, uh, you know, it's a little more uh, of a kind of dense melodrama than it is is. comedy, though it's got a lot of good comedy. Again, like none of his films, you know, are unvaluable, like they have something to them in each of them. But, you know, some of them can be more mixed than others. I'm not as enthusiastic to like shop around the corner, for for example. I love that one so much. It shows like such a different Jimmy Stewart, though, than the one we ever get. I mean, like there's like a whole alternative career happening just in that movie. Yeah, no, and, and it's got again, it's got lots of great aspects. I definitely want to rewatch it because I think uh, I went and expected something else. I like looking over my review. I'm like, ah, oh, it's so heavy. It's like, you know, there's like threats of suicide and such. What's going on? It's like, it's like <laughs> it is uh, disconcerting. <laughs> like it, it'd be like watching like I, th- I think something uh, an easy comparison with that film would be like uh, Wilder's The Apartment, mm-hmm. where like if you're going in expecting like a kind of laugh out loud typical comedy of his his variety. Uh, you might be a little confused because it's definitely like it leans on heavy drama as much as it does comedy. 
uh, and we should say like one like that. They they try it like accents and everything. They try to fit into their um, where was it like Belfast or something the shop, but uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember where exactly. But here they don't really go for that. It's all Americanized accents, and they don't really have to pretend to. Which I think uh, is the better approach overall. Yeah, I agree. Like Generally. you you uh just depict it for your audience you know don't try and and force authenticity if you don't i mean unless you get like christoph waltz and then you could do like inglorious bastards with a with a good fucking accent then yeah go for it and that was also like luck i'm pretty sure it wasn't tarantino like considering scrapping the film until he found waltz (laughs) yeah yeah um just a lot of fortune for him in that movie um god make a good pairing with this too yeah i thought it was only really derived from inglorious bastards like the original movie i didn't really know that it was so based on lubich well yeah so much of course like tarantino's films are so much an amalgamation of everything he i should have known (laughs) yeah like he he cribs from from everything here and there but this is obvious like one of the more obvious influences again of like being able to to tackle the the nazis in a way that is you know like uh, making fun of them, exposing them for the the ridiculous, you know, va- you know, veiled uh, absurdity that they are, while also preserving the the actual consequence and damage that they're they're bringing on, uh, you know, the Europe at the time. I wish. I, I guess my only regret is that I didn't have a couple of days to process it because I kind of watched it, fell asleep, worked, and then we recorded. <laughs> like it was it was a straight line from watching to recording as far it's, as my time to think. It's definitely a film I've appreciated and found more to love in each subsequent viewing. And some things yeah. which I thought were like rougher, like the, I remember like on a first impression, I'm like, you know, oh, I, I think the drama stuff is like too, too heavy versus the comedy. And it's like, no, that's, that's really important. Or like, I'm like, oh, I know Jack Benny's supposed to be a bad actor, but he kind of feels like a bad actor. I'm like, no, he's, <laughs> he's fucking brilliant. He's perfect here. When you, when you, you have really to be good that attack that bad. Yeah it, yeah, it was all things that, like, on a first watch, I think I misdiagnosed. But again, like, it's it's only gotten better and better with, with each viewing. I really think it is, like, Lubitsch's masterpiece, like, up there with, with Trouble in Paradise. Like, Trouble in Paradise, I think, is probably, like, the best in terms of, like, defining Lubitsch, you know, as a filmmaker and, and character and the way he balances those more, like, definitive elements. Yeah, but this is definitely... the best film, I think. Th- this this is like in the same competition like I, I would have a hard time picking it because it's it's boldness and it's directness in att- is is so eviscerating and so effective and so hysterical Absolutely. that you know it it's it's really hard to kind of uh pick between the two they're, they're both such you know uh you know fantastic em- emblematic films of of the the comedic pantheon of the time well, um, what are we coming up with next? Did we decide on a? We threw a few names around. I don't yeah, know if we... let's let's see how this works. We've tried this before, where we like would announce films that we can advance, but sometimes yeah. we're we're a little, you know, finicky and, and and we'll change our minds. But let, let's try this again. Let's That's try right. going uh, forward happy and announcing Death Day to you. No, no, okay, no, <laughs> no, okay. we're. We're, we're going to cancel the podcast if you keep insisting on this. No, <laughs> uh, She's in a musical, by the way. Maybe I'll bring that for next week. Uh, uh, a Jessica right. you, Roth musical. You might get me with musicals. You know I love musicals, but... <laughs> It'll be terrible, I'm sure. <laughs> no, uh, for next week, uh, we're going to dive back into a little bit of uh, French cinema uh, for once, and we're going to talk about Jean Cocteau's La Belle et la Bête, which is his uh, 
famous adaptation of uh, Beauty and the Beast, yeah. which is uh, fantastic. It's, I don't think you've seen this one, you said, right? No. Uh, happy Valentine's Day, everyone. We'll come yeah. back with that. I don't know if it's romantic. It might be a, a unromantic movie. Uh, you know, I, I think it's got its, it's uh, very it's romantic. Beauty and the Beast. I'm, I'm definitely enchanted by it. How about that? <laughs> that's good enough for me. I've seen a few versions of Beauty and the Beast, by the way. I've seen the Czech New Wave one, the Disney one, and... Uh, a couple others it's a it's an interesting story so there's i mean it's some a, context lo- lots of different adaptations uh, there's like a beastly have you seen that one <laughs> maybe <laughs> sounds familiarish the modern day new york set beauty and the beast <laughs> and we see a lot of stories where beauty and the beast of course plays into it but uh cocteau it, will be interesting oh yeah i think again if you're not familiar with him he's got a very ethereal quality to his uh filmmaking and uh this is uh, one of the, the apexes of it, certainly. It probably is most well-known, influential. So I'm excited to dive into it and uh, kind of itch your, your French scratch for the next couple months. Yeah, um, I'm sure I won't watch any other French movies. <laughs> uh, you want to lead us out here? Yeah, let's uh, wrap it up. All right, thanks everyone for tuning in this week. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at The Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, with Pavlos and Rogan, uh, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Look at me, ah!